0: Hello, Cachimbonas! I am so excited to bring you this next episode of season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast and audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. Hi, I'm Yvette. That's me. I was super honored this episode to interview Jorge Reinaud, who is a national leading voice in the abolitionist movement, particularly in Latinx circles. He is currently the National Criminal Justice Director for Latino Justice, and in our interview, he shared about his experiences living in Brownsville, Texas, and the criminalization he faced as a Chicano man there, the trauma of incarceration and his resilience within that, and the importance of poetry. I will give you all a trigger warning because we did discuss incarceration and sexual assault. And the timestamp starts around 5.50 if you want to skip through that discussion. And it was a really important conversation. Again, just grounding this podcast as based in the Southwest and moving towards abolition. If you want to further support the podcast, the number one way that is most helpful is to become a patron supporter at patreon.com slash depending on what you can give, you will either get a shout out on the podcast or if you can donate 5 to $10 a month you get access to the lit reviews, which are book club style chats with fierce women of color. And also that, so that whole back catalog and also early access to episodes and interviews like these, if you are not able to donate monetarily right now, which is incredibly understandable in these difficult economic times, another incredibly impactful way to support the podcast is through leaving an Apple podcast rating a review, a writing review on Spotify or wherever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Thank you to the Anon who left a review, a five star review on Rote Cachimbona on Apple Podcasts. And also thank you to Araceli Rivera Cohen who is a Cachimbona Apoyadora and gets a monthly shout out on the podcast for being. An amazing supporter. If you want to continue this conversation, if something inspired you or sparked a thought in you, you can continue the conversation on social media. You can follow at Radio Gachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can also follow my writings about the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary on Twitter at Yvette Borja AZ. That's where I post my Balls and Strikes writings. Uh, also, just check out the Balls and Strikes website itself for critical court commentary. Um, That is all for now. Thank you so, so much for listening. I love you all and hope you enjoy this interview. Chimbonas. Today, I am very excited to have Jorge Reinaud onto the podcast. He is the National Criminal Justice Director for Latino Justice, and we'll be talking about re-envisioning a justice system. But before we get into it, Jorge, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today.
1: Yeah, you're very welcome. I did a research. Right? <laughs> you're probably a classmate or a college mate of a good friend of mine. So yeah, I and honor and a pleasure to be here
0: today oh great thank you so much who is your friend bianca oh yes bianca yes i had bianca on the podcast i was on a panel with her we talked about abolition Mm -hmm. and learned so much and then you're in the um worth rises curriculum that they have where they break down who profits from incarceration and so i I knew that you had to come onto the podcast. So I'm based in Arizona, Tucson, and you are a child of the Southwest. You were born in New Mexico and uh, grew up in Texas. So to start out, I just wanted to ask you to share what your childhood was like growing up in the Southwest.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm the only one of eight children who was born out of Texas. My mom was eight months pregnant or something, and for some reason, she and my father decided, we were living in in the Texas Panhandle, in a little town called Olsen, between Lubbock and Amarillo, and they decided to trek off into New Mexico for some reason. So they did, and voila, here comes Jorge, you know, he was early. <laughs> so it served me well, because when I go to New Mexico, and say I was born in Portales, uh, New Mexicans are lit- a bit grudging when it comes to accepting Chicanos from Texas, right?
0: Oh.
1: Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> oh, no, it's funny. It's hilarious. They 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 all say that they're descended from the Conquistadores, which I find okay. I have I heard be- that. Yes.
0: Hey. And the, the, re- hey. the reenactment <laughs> of colonial yeah. times. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, of course, they have a really good revolutionary history, you know, well with the, mm. uh, the Land Grant Wars and, you know, the, the, the occupation of the county jail down there. But, uh, yeah, so I grew up on a very, very small, isolated farm in the Panhandle uh, for the first like nine years of my life. It was poor as hell, but in my view, idyllic, right? You know, mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, I get up and go out with my father. You know, it was irrigation with the wells, and we'd go out in the middle of the night and deal with broken wells. And I grew up in the fields. My first memory is of Having my own little bucket, you know, like the way kids have a bucket to do sand on the beach. I had a little bucket to put cucumbers in because we were picking cucumbers, mm. and I would fill my little bucket up and run to my mom and give it to her and go back and get some more and go to sleep or whatever. My uh, my father had been had entered into a handshake agreement that after ten years of basically sharecropping on this farm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: he would be given so many acres and the farm owner died, and his son broke that and ran us off after about nine and a half years. Wow. This little three-year odyssey of going from town to town in the panhandle, from Alton to Dimmit to Dumas, to Cactus, back to Dimmit to Del Rio. Uh, and we lived in, you know, what? I don't know if, if you're from the southwest of a certain age, you know a group called El Joe La Familia. He has a group called Los Cales de los Campos. It's about going out to the migrant camps to go to work.
2: Oh, wow.
1: And we lived in those camps for, you know, for a lot in the summers. And we would follow crops, mostly in Texas. And uh, then we would get to school, of course, and we were late, you know, two weeks, late mm-hmm. semester, So I was tracked and I was placed in the classes that were reserved for people who were special ed or they, they felt, you know, couldn't keep up. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty intelligent and I was always like, why are you doing this to me? Right. But, you know, I, I didn't understand the whole system behind it, of course. So we finally settled in B-ville in when I was about 13. And Beville is a small town between San Antonio and Corpus Christi. Ended up dropping out of high school and going into the Army. At, or we're going into the job corps and getting my GED and then going into the Army. And that's another phase of my life. Mm.
0: And so what brought you to criminal justice work and to decarceration?
1: Well, personal, honestly, I imagine anger. When I, I went to the army, when I returned, I was arrested one time. I was 19 in a little town called Sinton, mm-hmm. about, about 30 miles south of Beville. I had gone to go see a girlfriend, and I was drinking. And this was 77, when it was still legal. I mean, I'm not sure if it was legal. but cops didn't really care if you were drinking and driving. They would tell you to go home or something, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So a cop pulled me over, didn't like my attitude, which is pretty normal for me. <laughs> uh, yeah. And they put me in jail. They put mm-hmm. me in a jail that was, they put me in a county jail, not the city jail like they normally do for overnight or something, right? Mm-hmm. He was mad. And they put me in a county jail in a tank full of men who'd been already convicted and, and were waiting to transfer to uh the permanent criminal justice.
0: Right. As opposed to uh, being like where people are pre trial.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally. I was, I just got out the army. I was six feet, 180 pounds, a boxer. It didn't matter. I was beaten up. Raped mm. pretty well six, seven hours. The next morning, they kicked me out. and I was like in this state of shock for like two weeks. Right. And I walked into a church's fried chicken there in Vita with my father's uh, rifle two weeks later and robbed it. Right. And they showed me this odyssey, this 34, 35 year odyssey of prisoned and out, prison and out. Mm. Uh, I went to prison three times. My anger, my rage, my rape doesn't excuse my actions. But I, as a Chicano in that time, even today, you didn't know where to go to. You felt broken. You were ashamed. Right. You were humiliated.
0: Well, so, did you yeah. when you were in the army? Where did you serve, or what was your role there?
1: I was, uh, I don't know, I was a tank gunner. Um, I was in there for almost three years. Uh, I went in right at seventeen. Just,
0: you were I, seventeen. Uh, How do they even let minors do that?
1: Oh, yeah, I was a baby. Oh, my god! And, yeah, you could kill when you're a minor. You just can't smoke or, or you know.
0: <laughs> That's
1: Yeah, wild. it's weird. Yeah. Uh, on vote, of course. No, I was uh, originally, I didn't know, man. I went in and I had a, what's called an MOS, a guaranteed MOS. I was going to be listening on a listening post in Panama. I wanted to go to Panama. And, uh, and I didn't know, of course, I would not awoke then. That was yeah, a precursor. Yeah, That was a precursor to the NSA, right? So, Anyway, they did a a lot of deep uh, background on me, and they decided that that I didn't fit their security classification or whatever, and sent me to tanker school, and I drove a tank, and I went to Germany. Um, Wow. Which was, you know, if you're 18, 19-year-old, it's fun, you're in Germany, you know, you're traveling all over, you know, all these uh, Western European countries, Lebanon, and it's great. I mean, I had a good time. I I didn't know any better. I I wasn't aware of this being a huge green machine. Basically, I, yeah. was, uh, I was, you know, 17, 18.
0: Yeah. But it sounds like growing up, Brown, in South Texas, there would be a lot of confrontation with police, similar to the one that landed you in county jail.
1: There may have been with other people. There was not that much with me. I was a good kid. I, I drank, you know, smoked marijuana, but I was not... I don't remember any interaction with the cops. I'm sure... And at the time they were activists, right? This was the heyday, the late '70s, was the heyday of La Raza Unida mm-hmm. in, in Crystal City, and of course there's this long history, in, especially in Texas, of the Texas Rangers, right? Massacring, right. Avenging, brutalizing Mexican Americans. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the Melissa Lucio case very much based on that. But yeah, there wasn't that much with me when I did my crimes. I did my crimes got arrested, went jail, and it was not, oh my God, they're coming after me or they're abusing. And if it was. I, I don't remember it. No.
0: I mean, it was kind of like the trauma that you suffered happened severely all at once, and that must have been so disorienting for you.
1: It, it was incredibly, yeah. It was again, it was it was soul crushing, and there's no way to describe it. And, and you know, to answer your previous question, what what I get off into into CJ work? The last sentence I got in 1991 was for a sixty-year. I, I was given a sixty-year sentence.
0: Wow, six zero.
1: Yes. And I had already done right at 10. Three on one and seven and a half on another. And I, I thought I was going to die in prison. I had to do that before I even was able to book a parole. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I started reading a bunch of dead white guys. Uh, you know, Emmanuel Kant and Aristotle and Plato and a lot of these guys and realizing I could live a dignified life even with really in a cage. Wow. And I thought I was Which of
0: those taught you that?
1: Basically Kant. I mean, the idea of A moderation coming from Aristotle was cool, you know? But the idea of, not the golden rule, my God, what is it that kind of thing is for? The idea of, kind of absolutism, but uh, always acting in a manner as you want everyone else to act, given the same situation, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. In other words, here's the way I want you to act. I want you to be compassionate. I want you to be caring. I want you to be giving. I want you to be dignified. I want you to be loving. Mm -hmm. I want you to not be hurtful. I want you not to pain on me. That's the way I acted. And I wrote poetry for people, for their moms and their family. And I helped them with their appeals. And I mediated in a lot of gang disputes. And mm. and I, again, I thought I was going to die in prison. And I ended yeah. up being editor. I became editor of the text prison paper, The Echo. And I wrote enough articles and got the paper shut down in two years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was <Yeah>. too powerful. <laughs>
1: the yeah, truth was yeah. too real. That was actually it, man. Lo and behold, my second time out for of parole after seventeen and a half and a half years at parole, 2008.
0: The Texas parole board.
1: Yes. But no. I i had read the second time I was there, I started writing a lot of poetry. And I started publishing a lot. And I came to know a guy named Laul Salina. up stopped there from Austin.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One, one of the old school Chicanos. And he had been locked up in Marion in the, 50s, mm-hmm. in the 50s. And he was a friend of Leonard Peltier and, and been, it was pretty radical.
2: Yeah. And, he,
1: and he'd gotten out and started uh, this great bookstore here in Austin called Resistencia Bookstore. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, and it's very common culture, very, very LGBTQI, indigenous, other people, other world uh, oriented. And I, the first time I said poetry had to be published. I had friends, you know, you should try to get published, I didn't care about that. Uh, I sent it to him, he and Sandra Cisneros were co-editing uh, something called uh, Tonancy, which was a- Oh, wow. uh, Yeah. It was a magazine put out by uh, uh, the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. So I sent him I, I didn't know you were supposed to say three to five poems, man. I'm new at the game. Right? <laughs> so I sent him a bunch of poetry, and I don't hear anything, and I blew it off. And about three months later, I get three copies of the, of the issue in mail, <laughs> And he has my poetry, it's what's called The Double Truck. When you open up a magazine, it falls to the middle, right? To the uh-huh. one that, and they had like 10 of my poems there, the poetry. Oh, of my poems.
2: God. That's
1: cool, that? And that sent me on this okay, and I just I've been writing ever since, right? Yeah. Um, but I got to know Raúl when I got out that the the second time the, I was out four years, and I came to Austin, and he had an organization called Save Our Youth, mm-hmm. Soy, and oh. we'd go in and we would do poetry workshops with you know with the Chalipos and chalas and we would use narrative theory. You know, they were being called thugs and and gangs. Gang right. and. Mm-hmm. And we would use it we would help them twist those words into mm. words of power, you know? Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Like reclaiming those words.
1: Very much so. Reclaiming the story that's that told about you.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. And that's very would, powerful. Of, it is, man. It's a hell of a technique. I've used it a lot in other workshops. And we'd go to bars and read poetry to the winos. And, you know, they'd buy us beer. And we'd, you know, I was off the man. And anyway, <laughs> but I still hadn't faced my issues. I hadn't healed.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I went back to prison for that last time with that Mm. that 60 year sentence. But I finally read Bury My Heart and Wounded Knee uh, by Dee Brown, which is a retelling of the Native American conflicts with the US Mm -hmm. Mm military. And that's the one that really got me to thinking, Jesus, right? And I shifted the way I started thinking about abolition. I started seeing Mm. the people around me and thinking, thinking, thinking even about the guards, you know, because you demonize everybody. Prison dehumanizes everybody, not just mm. the people. They're the ones turning the keys get dehumanized, too. And I remember thinking, I was walking down the hallway one time and some boss was yelling at me. And I, before, I would, I'd yell back. And I remember thinking, maybe this guy has a kid at home, dying from leukemia. or And I personalized it. Mm-hmm. And I was able to shift the idea of saying that why do we have a system like this Right. That the, that the people who guarding us are pulled from the same class of people mm. who are in these cages so Right because to-
0: these guards do not get paid
1: well. No, my God, no, no, no so anyway, uh, yeah, that's how I got into it and I got out and I went to go testify at some legislative hearings here on, they were looking at administrative segregation and I went in on myself and I oh, Wait, you mean talking. solitary confinement? Well, yeah, but okay, solitary confinement, with if you've been incarcerated, has to do with the punishment that you're given, like if you go and you get a fight. Solitary mm-hmm. confinement, they'll give you 72 hours in the hole, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not an assignment, that's a punishment. Administrative segregation is an assignment, and it's actually putting you in solitary, yes, but it's it's an assignment that can be long-term, right? So there's a bit of a oh. difference. Yeah, okay. it's called ad seg. Uh yeah. And yeah. trans is normally called a whole. It's normally reserved for punishment. But yeah, they are basically the same thing. One is just an assignment. And even though legally speaking, adseg is not a punishment, it's an assignment. Yeah, we all know being put by yourself is very much so sucking. But having said that, I kind of quarrel with people who say that ad is torture if adseg is torture to what is the general population. Because because it diminishes the pain. And the despair that's inflicted on people who are just in everyday life in, in prisons.
0: Right.
1: Because I've known many men who would do whatever they could to get out of the day to day horror and violence and sexual abuse and right. violence right. in GP to go that right. right. and be by themselves. Right. So, but yeah. that's
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate that perspective because I've heard yeah. that. I've heard a lot of testimonies about that too. And yeah. it's all violent. It's so. all, yeah.
1: Yeah. And at least it had said you're by yourself. And as long as you, you know, keep your nose clean, you know, you're going to get treated poorly, just like you are everywhere. But, you know, you still get to make some commissary, you get mail, you get to do the little radio back there. You're by yourself, because um, you may never get out of there. And right. you, if prison in and of itself is not a socializing experience, think what, you know, 23 hours by yourself, no human contact at all is. Yeah, you have to be extremely strong to come out of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I know I have some sort of PTSD. I've never been assessed, but I have nightmares two or four times a week, just from my experience. Mm. I can't imagine what it was like to have to do years and years yeah. and years just right. listening to the echoes coming out of all of other men, right. of other of other humans, going slowly losing losing their faculties and the despair. So, right. yeah.
2: mm-hmm.
1: to be the national criminal justice director for latino justice okay well so when i got out again i i, I ended up coming to the attention of a woman named anna correa who was ed of the Texas criminal justice coalition here in austin and it's a group of people who focus on the legislature right on mm-hmm. pushing aggressive legislation i was testifying at the capitol and she saw that I had things to say, that I said been well, that I had a unique perspective. So she approached me and said, "Look, you know, I was in school at the time, in grad school. Just you know, finish your school and then come talk to me." So I ended up getting hired as a policy analyst to take the Common Justice Coalition. Mm. I was then kind of recruited to go be an organizer for the Center for Community Change in BC. Mm-hmm. It had a, it had a group called uh, In Mass Incarceration, which was kind of a spark. Then I came to organize at a group called Grassroots Leadership here in Austin. And I ended up writing something on video calling, right? The, the mm-hmm. movement to get away from in-person visitation and replace it with videos. Oh, no. Yeah. And I came to the attention of a guy named Peter Wagner, who's the... Was this pre-COVID? Leader. Yes, very much so. Okay, yeah.
0: okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, this virtual is, hearings have been around for a while, really driving yeah. people of due process rights.
1: Totally, totally. Especially... Oh, that was show really in the, immigra- in the immigration world. Right? Yes, oh my
0: that's where I knew yes. it from. The, um, oh, yes, I used totally. to do deportation defense and sorry if it horrific.
1: Yeah, and they would just line them up and, you know, have had no idea. It's incredible. Anyway, he recruited me. I went to go work for him as a senior policy analyst in Massachusetts. And during that time, I was going to, I was being invited to speak on panels across the country on various topics. I can be a little wordy and I put this <laughs> together. Well... And again, I had this perspective, I'm not bitter, I just realized that uh, prison dehumanizes everybody who comes yeah. into contact, let's get rid of them. Yeah. So I met Juan Cartagena, who was the then president general counsel mm-hmm. of uh, Latino Justice, mm-hmm. and Errolimo Saldana, and got to hang out with them. Juan, Latino Justice is an organization that is, is in fact, it's celebrating its 50th year this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, They've always they're like the maglev, the Mexican American Legal Defense Education of other Northeast, and they've yeah always
0: used, the historically yeah. focused on the Puerto Rican population.
1: they did yes, but and now it's just they, Latino
0: justice
1: yes, very much so, and so they always use class action litigation as a way to address some of societal ills that were keeping Latinos dehumanized right or mm-hmm. marginalized. But Juan was realizing that we needed some sort of on-the-ground advocacy, organizing, who's going to push legislation, who's going to deal with some of the local policies that are that are affecting folks. If you look at the homeless population, a disproportionate number of them are people who've been incarcerated and right. are from our community. So how do we deal with that? Mm-hmm. So he, he was also accepting the idea, and I give him all him and him and all the credit in the world, realizing that they needed someone who'd been through the system. Right. Yeah. And you know, the idea that, you know, you know, mean nothing about us without us, right? Right,
0: right.
1: So he reached out to me and said, Look, man, if you know, he tried to send me to Florida to go with there. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I don't want to go to Florida. But <laughs> any state in the country to take it So but when I decided to leave prison policy initiative, I told Juan, okay, dude, I'm I'm kinda ready. So we had some funders that had told me, Look, if you ever want to come back to Texas, let me know. So I wrote a grant and got funded for the position of the Southwest regional, uh, Director of the Southwest region. Yeah. And then one decided to make that a national thing. So he kind of bought me up to national before he left last year, before he retired last year. And now I just hired somebody in Texas. We're hiring somebody in in Florida. So, yeah, it's, it's, we're not like national Mississippi. We're like the ACLU. We got captain of the state. Um,
0: well, thank God you're in, like the ACLU. <laughs> I'm <just Yeah>. saying. <laughs> yes, not, no, no. Oh, still yeah. right there, I'm just saying.
1: <laughs> Am yes. I? I'm playing with <laughs> it. No, you know, you know what? But I've found about the ACLU, depending on what state you go to. Some 100%. Are, yeah. Depends. You can go to some shit. And, but they're very slow when it comes to agreeing to do something. They got to, like, kick it up the ladder. Hey, let me see what that is. Yeah, yes. So
0: three months later. Oh, yes. Yeah. We can join your campaign.
1: Dude, mm-hmm. dude this is, we already made the action to do the leap. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh my
1: God. But, but there's really good people here. And here in Texas, they've hired at least as far as I know, two formerly incarcerated people mm. to do the community outreach here locally. So, yeah, you know, I, yeah, they have their, they have their, we all, every organization mm-hmm. in the world has its name, right? right. Uh, ACAU is bothered by a plethora of bureaucracy and money. They have way too much money. that. Yes. That's yes. Great. Yeah. So, anyway, so here I am. And our role is to, we don't have a base without membership. Mm-hmm. I try to identify individuals who've been incarcerated or the family members and train them in leading the effort locally on a mm-hmm. statewide level or nationally that yeah. will help transform the system as we know it, right? Yeah. And we, I work very closely with immigration because I understand that the, the, the individual turning the key don't give a damn you did to get there. You know, they're just going to give And a lot of immigration folks are still kind of stuck in the, well, we're not criminals type thing. Well, if there's yeah. a law says they're going to put you in jail and they put you in jail, I'm sorry, but <laughs> you're a criminal. But yeah. no, you haven't put it under someone's <laughs> head like I have. So let's talk about that. And let's talk about the history and the colonization mm-hmm. and, the, mm-hmm. and the and the the criminalization of our people. And let's talk about the way we're portrayed. And let's talk about the history of the other national organizations that have decided assimilation is the way to go and that have ignored the plight of their people Right, that had been overrepresented in our jails let's talk about all those things mm-hmm. and then let's talk about what good it does to get because most of the people i talk to in immigration have brothers who were incarcerated fathers who were yeah. yeah you know, i mean
0: this is sort of totally right. intermeshed
1: right so let's talk about these systems so yeah. i found that it's an incredible experience and i love what i do
0: that's amazing too i mean that's that you know building connections with The immigration deportation machine and those fighting it is really important in the places that you all are, like Texas, Florida. It's really critical. So I really appreciate that you all are doing that. What bills have you authored and what issues were they trying to get at and resolve? What bills have you advocated for?
1: Good question talk about the successful ones, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that's yeah. a good place I'm to so start. Long. I understand. Yeah. Yes, uh, I appreciate that. I know you're probably losing a lot because yeah. I'm in Arizona uh,
1: where you lose a lot too, right? <laughs> oh, I, I have good friends in Arizona. We're just gonna call with Alejandro Pablos. and uh, Alejandro
0: Pavlos. She's yeah. my good friend.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 she was. She's cool as shit. Um, I anyway, there's a very small circle or not as big a circle as we would think of people yeah. doing this work. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. uh in T D C J was that this prison system. There's an in prison uh, school district, Williams School District, and one of their mandates is to train people vocational classes to be electricians, plumbers, all these things that are needed to run the system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the guards don't the guards do three things: they pass right. out mail, they count, and they turn keys. Everything mm-hmm. else is done by incarcerated people.
2: Yes. So,
1: so there were all these people who were being taught these skills in maintenance crews. And thinking that they get out, and they could do all this, you know. Wow, great, I've had 10 years of prison plumber. But mm. well, of course, they got out and there was licensing, but they mm. couldn't, they, they couldn't be licensed. Right. So I pushed Wyndham into, we proposed a patch legislation that said that if anyone wants to take one of your vocational classes, you have to advise them whether or not there is a, a licensing requirement that will prevent them from pursuing this vocation on the outside. Right, And and so, you need to offer them some alternative, so they like bugged at that. But we ended up passing that. I wrote a bill and passed a bill that had to do with giving employers limiting liability of people who hire people with felony convictions, right? Because the main reason people oh, okay. want to hire people, oh, we're going to get sued. So we limited the liability of that if they did their if they actually abided by the EEOC fair chance uh, of stipulation, right? That the conviction has nothing at all to do with, with the job with the job and the seeking all that kind of stuff. One that I'm really Proud of, and people would think that moms of kids whose dads are incarcerated would have been against me on this. I people were come to jail and prisons, and over the course of eight, nine years, ten years, were accruing thirty, forty thousand dollars in child support because the uh-huh. clock, didn't, clock didn't stop when they when they came to jail. Mm-hmm. And we like this doesn't do anybody any good because they get out, they have this debt, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they, well, there's a lot like, of like
0: penalties I, attached
1: to that debt. Depending oh, oh my yeah god, yes. And But we ended up doing it where if you are, once you're incarcerated after 60 days, that stops. And the ones who fought us on that were the family lawyers. The mothers understood that it's no good getting up $30,000 that he's never going to pay, especially yeah. if that is, is from his family. Right. right. Because um, where's
0: the money going to come from if they don't exactly. pay you in prison?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we did that one. Yeah, so I passed the bills. I had some that couldn't do with, with conditions. The ones I proposed last session were around... The association clause, which is in many states, if you are if you have, if you're on supervision, if you hang out with someone else who's on supervision, they can revoke that. Oh, right. right. Yes. And yes, I've
0: that. I've thought yeah. about this. That's so important. Yeah. Because that's allegedly a first amount, right is to be able to associate with who you want to associate with.
1: And that's, thank you. That's a very good good angle and one that I pushed before in fact, but <laughs> it's a misreading of sociological theory that says that. Bonta and Edwards, it was like 30 years ago where they talked about criminological factors that send someone back to prison mm-hmm. or one of them is association with people involved in antisocial activity. Well, duh, yeah, you <laughs> hang out with them. Right? But, policymakers turn that into that if you're hanging out with someone who has a history, you are inherently involved in antisocial activity. Right. right, as, as right, right. So I push legislation on Which that. Which is very restrictive. I, yes, very much so. Oh not only that, there's sixty-four thousand people in the last I would the last time I lived two years ago that are back in prison of quote unquote technical violation of parole. Right.
0: Yes, yes, these small things like this.
1: Yes. Uh a, a funny story, when I went to Massachusetts, Massachusetts liberal as it sounds, you know, the pursuing gay marriage, everybody has solar panels, solar heating and shit. They're very they're a lot more restrictive on parole mm. and and people than Texas. And they have wow. to monitor oh yeah, they slapped have monitor on me over there. An ankle monitor and I'd been out 10 years and didn't have an ankle monitor in Texas mm-hmm. and they told me well hurry! you're like you know two hours from the Canadian border and I was like dude I was two hours what? from the Mexican <laughs> border I, I have relatives that had, and I speak the language the clock. but uh, they did it because they could mm-hmm. and and they asked yeah. me well there's a lot of
0: profit for the ankle monitor companies
1: yes and they're very deep into the association class right so they asked me uh, you need to tell us anytime you hang out with anybody who has a criminal record. Or coming, I go well. You may as well just everybody I know. That's what I do. Nice <laughs> people. Yeah. people. Everybody I'm with, man. So yeah, it was it was funny. But my point is, uh, I, I had legislation last session that went to the governor's desk, and I, he he vetoed it. I wrote a bill having to do with uh, I want to change the composition of the parole board to make it to make it more reflective of individuals who, in fact. No mental health,
0: mm-hmm. no
1: substance abuse, as opposed to having three former sheriffs of a goddamn parole. Yes, I mean,
0: yes, yes.
1: So uh that didn't make it out of committee. I you know, I, I figured that. And I had one that uh, it, prisons if you spoke to Bianca, you know this. There's a there's a lot of program programmatic activity goes on in prison. Mm-hmm. Programs mm-hmm. that are pushed by vendors that supposedly yeah. quote unquote are rehabilitated rehabilitated tools. Well, during COVID you've had there was like, we found out that there were like 14,000 people in TDCJ that had been granted parole and were sitting there because they couldn't get programmed. Wow. So, yeah, and some have been there over a year. So Why were they I, not released? Because by statute, they have to take some sort of program. Texas was way behind in offering the program, and now COVID is, Wow. And now And now they can't allow when the people offer the program. So these people are just stuck, and I'm like, I'm pushing them on. Why can't you offer, these have got their programs on the outside. Why do you have to be on the Yeah,
2: exam? yeah. Well,
1: so, so I sent them a long email of the things I want. You know, describe your program. Uh, tell me about their, you know, what, what do you do for someone with a disability? What do you do for someone with primary mm. languages and in English? Mm. Uh, what sort of independent evaluation do you have? All this stuff. And they said, hold oh, we can't tell you that. I go, you're a state agency with state dollars. Public dollars. Why can't you? And they're like, well, you got to file a FOIA. So we filed a bunch of FOIA. They denied mm. them all. We sued their ass. Mm-hmm. They finally started really too much stuff. But I also wrote legislation around that and that at least made it to the Senate here and got shot down. You know, that's kind of the stuff I do. I'm always looking at conditions. I'm not at all interested in giving CDC any more money. Right. I am an abolitionist and I know it's not gonna fall down tomorrow. And I know our first job is to build a community that is mm-hmm. compassionate and that offers services that we need within reach and offers them in a way that's meaningful and available and sustainable. 'Cause you could open up all the cages next week and they'd fill it back up within a year if we don't do that. So how do we address these sort of things? How do we address the questions having to do with, well, here, what does accountability look like in that if he does that in Idaho? Well, first, it's not my business, Idaho. It's their business, it's that community's business to figure that right. out. But right. we still do believe in or I believe in some kind of separation if someone does really commits harm or whatever. But what yeah. does that look like? I appreciate that, that,
0: that. people like? don't always hold they don't hold that yeah. nuance or distinction.
1: You have to, man. But what does that look like, right? And, yes. And and what sort of education and are you going to offer this 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 person? And yeah. who's going to give it? Who's going to give it to them? And mm-hmm. what sort of and what sort of therapy are you going to provide yeah. it? And what what sort of assessment are you going to give them to if, when when you know to gauge their readiness to come back? So all those things have to be thought out, and, yeah. and one has to speak to them. But I think if every community is right to decide yeah. what accountability looks like, yeah. But it's there. But it's the responsibility to take the time to take those things out. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, I went off rambling on some much. No, no, this
2: is great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask about the Re- re-envision Hostessia Network. What is that, right. and what are you all trying to do?
1: No, we just met today, which is cool. It's a network of individuals who are either Latinx and involved in transformation of systems that deeply affect our communities, mm-hmm. or there are Latinxes who are leadership positions of organizations that are doing that. People like Alejandra, who's not in mm-hmm. an organization, but still, in her public way, mm-hmm. is very much doing that. Maritza Perez with the Drug Policy Alliance, mm-hmm. with, with what do. You do, uh, she works in stopping Ending, ending solitary confinement for juveniles. You need to have done this, right? La defensa, l'exceple. What happened was Heronimo, through his time, moving through the system, moving through the DTA, the place he was at. One, realized that no organization could do everything by itself. You know, there's too many things to do. There's too many centuries of oppression to overcome. Yeah. But you could have a network and you could have somebody in Chicago working on, I don't know, you know, Bell Bond mm-hmm. stuff. And there's somebody in Harris County that's done it already. So let's meet and bring people together and exchange ideas and, and get people so they don't have to create the wheel every time that they address the issue. Mm-hmm. So, and we support each other. We help each other. We just had a meeting today. And again, it was it was smaller today with uh Sarah Craft, who works with Equal Justice Initiative. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm terrible with names. But she focused on, on the death penalty. She, of course, and she she wanted to talk about Melissa Lucio. She came yes. to meet, yeah. and, I went on and Can you share of, about that case
0: really quickly?
1: Yes, Melissa Lucio is scheduled to be executed, killed by the state of Texas in about 20 days. Uh, Melissa was accused of killing her youngest child, mm-hmm. who was her 11th child while pregnant with twelve. 12th. Um, there, was, <clears throat> there was no evidence whatsoever that the, that the child died of whatever. Mm-hmm. The child who died had a medical history of instability, physical instability. Mm-hmm. And what Melissa said was that she stumbled down the stairs. Melissa had no history of, of the child CPS involvement with her. Right. kid. right,
2: right.
1: Melissa, Melissa had a history of, a, of, of severe abuse by all the men in her life. Mm-hmm. She was a woman who was taken in and the Texas, pinched, pinched the Texas Rangers took her in and questioned her for hours on end. And in the end, just basically brought her down and she had got a false confession from phone, from what I haven't seen that specific video. It, her case is so egregious. That is. Even got That there are Republican legislators here in Texas telling Abbott, do something here. Wow. I mean, seriously, people like Jeff Leach, who's the uh, most Tea Party conservative you can think of, got together with some of these. No, y- y'all need to do something with this woman. And yeah. So, you know, there's been the, the Innocent Project, has, of course, done what it's done, which would be, be incredible and great. And we've kind of followed their lead in this. But yeah, so we're trying. It's just outrageous. We, oh, yeah. And the goal is of course the goal is of course to get her to get her under trial, but in the meanwhile, the goal is to have her sentence delayed so the Innocence project can push for a new trial.
2: Right. And that
1: so if y'all want to oh, well, it will be too late. I'll get to the live. I'm used to speaking on panels in the live. <laughs> Sorry.
0: You mentioned <laughs> Can't that <do> this. <laughs> yeah. when you envision a, when you re envision a system for addressing harm, what does that look like to you? We kind of started getting at this, you know, about how um We do need to think about the hard questions about, you know, what do we do if somebody has committed a harm that's so severe and doesn't seem to repent, doesn't want, you know, what, and the decision is to separate them from the community. It's like, what does all of that look like to you? And you did a really good summary, but is there anything else that you wanted to add about what it looks like to re-envision an accountability system?
1: Shout out to Jack Quillis, former prosecutor now with Vera. We've had a lot of conversations about this. We talked about, unlike a lot of abolitionists, I'm not necessarily against prosecutors. I'm against the paradigm of prison, of punishment. The the role.
0: But how do you separate prosecutors
1: from that? Well, yeah. I mean, right. And that's all a shout out to Jack. Because it's not so much the DA that is elected that crows about 97% conviction rate and plea bargains and scares the hell out of everybody. Not that. What I'm talking about is the role of someone within the community who would serve as an arbiter mm-hmm. between harm and harming, or someone that harms someone. Yeah, involved. I think um,
0: that'd be such a fundamentally different role. We should even call that a prosecutor.
1: Yes, thank you. And so I stand corrected. I spoke a little bit quickly. It's not that, again. I'm not, I'm against again anything involved with a system that results in revenge and punishment. Yeah, but role of someone within the community who's a point about a community to look at stuff like this and decide how to move forward, whether we have to look at that, do we, is it, Jack made a really good point to me that I had not thought of That diversion programs are always, 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 since based upon, you don't do this for a certain amount of time, and we will let go of the charging web against you, mm-hmm. or you do this for a certain amount of time, take this program, report, blow clean, we'll, we'll just put the charges against you, a true diversion program will send you into that program and let go Regardless of what you do, whether you finish, don't finish, whatever. That's diverse. But yeah, harm is such a personal thing. And we internalize it in such personal ways. And it takes us, we are, we we have such different levels of resilience and ability to to communicate what's been done to us and ability to see what it is that we need or seek what it is that we need or ask for what it is that we need that I don't think there can be a sort of program that we check off X, Y, Z. I think harm and healing need to be left to the communities, need to be left to individuals. And what you do is you have to offer the resource that through your struggles with individuals, you find, oh, it would, might be really nice to have an office here that funds a daycare center or, or something. Mm-hmm. in say every four blocks, even if it's a small one, where a mom who just had two kids or whatever was feeling desesperada. And she could call and we'd go mm-hmm. over a baby for, 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 for six hours. So right. something as simple as that, right? That you see the need and you don't politicize it. Mm-hmm. And you say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have the funds for this. There's Again, there's so many ways that people are hurt and that people hurt each other. There are just that many ways. There are that many avenues toward healing. So I don't know what I need. I know that I, I wrote something called Nourishing My Nightmares that has to do with in order to offer testimony at different levels of government to get things changed, which most of us agree is the best way to persuade people. Narrative, you know, again, Mm -hmm. telling stories, you have to be real. You can't come off the road. And for it to be real, you still have to feel it. That means you're constantly scraping up that pain and that despair and that anger and that loneliness. And for me to go totally healed would may render me ineffective as an agent of communication and change. It's kind of a trade off, you know, I did an interview with Latino Rebels a couple years ago, and he goes, well, how do you deal with this? I go, well, poorly, motherfucker. I'm mean, going <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> you don't deal with it well, man. <laughs> I've had my stumbles, right? But I, you know, I, I, I get through with, with the power of community. Right. So I think that's it's that. It, you, you can't, you cannot have politicians posturing as self-appointed mouthpieces of the community. Yes. And you know, the prosecutor said I I represent the state. No, you don't, sir. No, you don't. No, you don't. Hmm. You represent yourself at a certain office and certain interests, moneyed interests of uh, pale uh people with, with with penises. That's who you represent. And right. the only people you represent. You don't represent the rest of us. And yeah, uh, I'm sorry, they they just really angry with me. Somebody <laughs> like Abbott. Yeah, and I think it would have to do there are I think you can begin small. You can begin with, with restorative justice programs. Like here I've read a lot of circles, healing circles, community building mm. circles, based on indigenous principles, right? You know, yeah. of, of storytelling. It's small, but and you know, we, we now have a quote unquote progressive prosecutor, you know. Jose Garza. In Austin? Of, yeah, he came out of work a Defense Project. And he's actually kind of fulfilling the role to be honest in a lot of ways. But still, he is a prosecutor, on <laughs> Victim offender mediation process, right? It they can a can offender and I, I hate to use the word, but that's the word is there, right? I want to ever use it, but that's the way the, the process is. But if they ask for a meeting with a person they harmed, is that actually going to be related to that individual? Are they going to have a way to do that? And, 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 and what's the purpose of that? Uh, you have to take victims out of the, or survivors of violence out of the parole process, right? Mm-hmm. Because right now what they do 10 years down the road, they're still encouraged by prosecutors and by the system to go in there and, and spout venom and, and basically not pursue the healing process and say, keep this person in. Right? Yeah. That person not be that out of a cage. Yet they have no idea of the, the changes that that individual has gone through. Mm-hmm. The, the role for them in that process is to help devise meaningful ways to address healing, meaningful ways to address harm caused by individuals who are in cages and help those individuals walk through that. That would be a healing role for both of them, for both people, instead of just encouraging them to, don't let him out, don't let her out, right? Right. So there's all these little small things that can be done, but they need to be done. And I will call on my compatriots and colleagues, we have fought expansions of the jail here in Travis County quite a few times. We won a couple times. But uh, the argument is always that if these services, because people say, oh, we need to provide these services to women in jail and I get them. No, you need to provide them to them before they go to jail and then maybe they wouldn't. Yes, to jail. exactly,
0: prevention.
1: But, but if we offer that, we have to be ready with a list of agencies that will, in fact, provide the services. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, just
1: we have to run.
0: fund these programs. Yeah, right,
1: right. We can't just say, oh, there's a, well, we're okay, so where are those organizations? Right? So where's the one that, that deals with young fathers? Where's the one that deals with single mothers? Where's the one that deals with individuals who are developmentally delayed and are going to be institutionalized because their single mom can't afford I mean, Where are those damn? And, where, and, and how are they being funded? And are they sustainable? If we're going to make that argument, that to be viable has to be meaningful. But those are the ways that we start chipping away at this damn state, right? That allows COPS 911 to be the magic number and to be the first thing called and expected to provide every damn social service that, that, that,
0: that we could dream of. Right, right. Which is so risk to think that cops could ever do that. Um, I really appreciate um, everything that you just envisioned for us. I think you gave a lot for people to sit with. I wanted to end with having you explain the power of poetry because I think it's so powerful that <laughs> that that's part of... What well, sustained you? I'm serious, people <laughs> dismiss the importance of poetry. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so if you could please share, what is the what is the power of poetry to you?
1: Yeah, I don't know, man. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, the power of the reader, power of the writer. I mean, you know, in our countries, I'm okay. I'm not. I'm being. I'm jumping the gun here. You have it kind of Indian look to you, like I do to me, so it could be... I'm
0: Salvadoran, yeah.
1: Okay, I was going to say, so we've maybe come from both countries where poets and poetry has had an integral place in revolution. Cuba, Russia, i that. Poets aren't really honored in this country, I don't think. I'm that way. The power of poetry. The power of poetry is the way that how one experiences the world can be conveyed to another
2: Mm -hmm.
1: in words that are simple enough but in a combination of lyricism, music, cadence, speech, visualization, personification, that allows them to see what you see, experience what you experience, or experience something other than the way they've experienced all their life. It right. opens up, it opens up portals for them. It it, it 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 allows everyone to be a visionary, if only for the moment that they're experiencing the poem uh, or at least that's what the poems do them. Who the hell knows to do that? Yeah, uh, not
0: all poems do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I wish you'd have said something. I'd have had one ready to share with you. But
0: uh, Well, you can email some of your favorites and I can add them in the show notes if you want.
1: Yeah, okay. okay. Uh, okay we can do some battle metal or some shit. Yeah. Oh.
0: Is there anything that I missed? That was the last question I had.
1: Man, if you show <laughs> Just, uh, the, no, the last no, question I that yeah.
0: I like asking people is what is giving you life right now?
1: Good question. Collaboration. Um, seeing the enthusiasm with which my new staffer came on and started sending me suggestions and ideas mm. to the young, the younger, 20, 23-year-old 20, Chicana. And it's like, when I encourage that. And it's like, thank you for doing that. The way that the Latinx community is willing to say, What the hell is Latinx? What the hell is you know, the willingness to question and to listen strength of the people in, in Ukraine. Uh my daughter, who with whom I just had a reproach with after like four years of distance, I guess her heart is her birthday twenty six, she'll be thirty two and I love Catalina. Uh, yeah, the fact that I am meeting someone this Friday, I've always been pushed to write to put together a book of poetry and I, I I'll name, But I this illustrator from Senate here, here is pushing me to meet with her Friday to yes. do her illustration of my poetry. So I that, love would, that that's cool. Uh these kind of things, man. Sitting down and talking with somebody who you don't you don't know, who <laughs> asks you questions and pulls things from you that maybe you haven't thought about. And maybe he questions you that's okay. I don't mind being questioned. I don't mind being told I'm full of crap. it's okay. You know, if the day you think you know it all is the day you the day you start dying, man. Huh? Yeah. You know? Friends like Bianca, uh, yeah, that keeps me going. Just this life, knowing that I'm not in a cage anymore and I'll be 14 years out and I celebrate that pretty well every day. And I give thanks to whatever spirits there are, goddess, goddesses there are that soft it to say, you, you, you're not gonna die in there alone, you know. Yeah. You might die out here alone, you're not gonna die in there alone. So that's <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: Okay, well, you are hilarious. Thank you so much for your courage and your wisdom. And yes. I hope to have you back on the podcast again to discuss okay. your work even more.
1: Okay, gracias. Take care. Thank Appreciate you so much.